Well, beloved listeners, for nearly two years now, Northern Ireland's Parliament has been at a stalemate after the Democratic uh, Union Party, after the First Minister, resigned vowing not to form a government until its demands were met regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol. More of that shortly. Now, due to the uh, power-sharing arrangements, this meant the Deputy First Minister lost her position. Now, after mass strikes and civil unrest put uh, both the DUP and the Nationalists under, under great pressure, the Stormont is back. But this time, at the helm is one Michelle O'Neill, the first ever leader from Sinn Féin to take the position as uh, Northern Ireland's First Minister. This is an historic moment in the history of the political movement, once described as uh, terrorists unfit to lead. Fintan O'Toole is one of my all-time favourite guests. We've previously talked about... uh, Joe Biden, and I must get him back to continue that conversation. Fitton, of course, is an author, columnist for the Irish Times, and he joins us from Dublin. Welcome back. What was it that got DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson to agree to having a leader from Sinn Féin? Uh, hi, Philip. It's lovely to talk to you again. Um, well, I suppose there were two big things. Um, one is that as you mentioned, um, most people in Northern Ireland, like most people everywhere else, just want a government that gets on with the day-to-day business of the health service, of, of uh, as you mentioned, there were big strikes in across the public sector because they haven't been paid, uh, pay rises that uh, the British government had agreed they should be paid. Uh, all of these day-to-day bread and butter issues are what most people care about. And so most people were really pretty uh, fed up with the fact that their politicians were were, were not getting on with that job. Uh, so that was, I suppose, the immediate context. <clears throat> but then there was this larger question, really, which is um, to do with the outworkings of that monstrous project called Brexit. <laughs> and Northern Ireland, as listeners might remember, was always this sort of fly in the Brexit ointment. It was the anomaly because the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland suddenly, with Brexit, became one of the European Union's major external borders. Uh, And it was completely unacceptable to the Irish government and to most Irish people that a hard border with border posts and all that kind of stuff would be re-established on the islands of Ireland. So therefore you had to come up with some kind of other arrangement and this was extremely difficult. Eventually ended up with, as you mentioned, what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which effectively means that Northern Ireland stays with one foot in the European Union and one foot in the United Kingdom. So still in the United Kingdom, legally, technically, politically, but it's also still within the single market and the customs union of the European Union. Now, this made the Democratic Unionist Party, which is the majority party of the, uh, I suppose to put it crudely, the Protestant population, the population that wishes to maintain Northern Ireland's place within within the United Kingdom, it made them 
understandably angry because their position in the United Kingdom was was being marginalised. Um, they were getting a different Brexit effectively from the rest of Britain. Now, the big political problem actually was that it was their own fault. Right? <laughs> they were the ones who drove very heavily for the hardest possible kind of Brexit. So they created this situation in the first place. And as you know, the hardest situation to get out of uh, without losing face is one that you've created yourself, right? So they had to, <laughs> they had to come to a situation whereby they could claim victory, they could claim that they had you know, defended the union and seen off this threat. In reality, everybody knows that not much has really changed, but the British government came up with some nice language about the, um, the position of, the, of, of Northern Ireland in the UK. There's been some kind of um, easing of the, uh, the checks of goods going between Britain and Northern Ireland, so they'll become a lot less visible. Uh, and finally, Geoffrey Donaldson, who's the leader of the Democratic Union's party, uh, having delayed and delayed and delayed because he was afraid of a split in his own party, uh, I think, you know, skillfully manoeuvred it to a point where he could claim victory and get them back into government. And the other context for this, right, is, is again, as you mentioned, Philip, in your uh, very accurate introduction, you know, which is there's the psychological barrier for Protestants and particularly for the DUP, which is that owing to the results of the elections, which were two years ago, the biggest party in Northern Ireland is now Sinn Féin, the nationalist party that used to be the political wing of the IRA. And therefore, under the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, the largest party gets to nominate the first minister. And that's a difficult psychological blow for Protestants and Unionists, right? Because it means that an enemy of the Union is now the first minister of Northern Ireland. Fintan, what did Sunak promise re the Northern Ireland Protocol? So previous legislation, for example, had referred to the existence of something called the all-island economy, right, which is basically the economic ties between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Uh, they took that out. <laughs> it doesn't actually make any difference. The uh, all-island economy is developing anyway because if you're a company in Northern Ireland, uh, you have this fantastic advantage, which is through the Republic of Ireland, you can export to the European Union uh, as a member of the single market, right? so without any kind of paperwork or, or all that kind of messing, which, is, which Brexit has involved. Uh, but they took out the language saying that this was going to be encouraged. They uh, have um, softened some of the procedural stuff. So this is about what happens if you're exporting sausages from... <laughs> I don't know, from, from Yorkshire to Belfast. Right? Um, it, it is genuinely crazy that you get into a situation whereby there have to be health certificates and you know veterinary certificates and all sorts of checks on that kind of trade if the sausages are staying in Northern Ireland. Right? <laughs> you know, the, the European Union's problem is, uh, again, it's a recent problem, which is, okay, that's all very well, but you can't, you can't cheat, you can't use Northern Ireland you know, export stuff to Northern Ireland, then use it to just export it to the Republic of Ireland, and then it can be exported to France or Germany or Poland without any further checks, right? So you, so this whole business of checking um, it, it is an annoyance to people, and also, of course, it has symbolic importance for people who want to see the Union, because unified countries don't have border checks or, or customs checks on, on goods moving within them. 
So now, a lot of it was just about softening that stuff, making the checks less visible, less onerous. And I think that everybody agrees that just makes sense. You have had five years without a government. What happened? Well, you know, what, what, what happened in Northern Ireland is, is, is really extraordinary in a way, which is that um, who, who was in charge? You know, you can, it's actually almost like a kind of weird experiment, right? What, what happens without, without a government? And what happened basically is that civil servants, unelected civil servants, were, were running the local government departments. Um, and th this means that there's effectively no political accountability. It, it, it's actually a good reminder of why, for all its problems, democracy is a pretty good idea. Right? It is that, you know, almost a synonym for democracy is accountability. Somebody who's making decisions has to be able to account for them before parliamentary committees, and then also has to be accountable to an electorate. Uh, unelected civil servants who, who are, were, you know, very decent people acting in the best interests as they saw it of the public, but they don't have to answer any of these questions, you know. Uh, and so what we saw was this kind of vacuum where day-to-day -day government goes on, um, but but there's just no real um, debate, no questioning, uh, no uh, way of, of, of um, asking the people who've made the decisions why they made the decisions and whether they were good decisions or not. Uh, so, um, you know, even in the sort of extraordinary circumstances of Northern Ireland, which is a slightly strange creation, uh, just basic democratic systems are, are, are really, really necessary. And people want them. This is the thing that, you know, whether you were a unionist or a nationalist, a Protestant or Catholic, overwhelming evidence was that most people just actually wanted to have some form of accountable government. Tell me about the new First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, who enters effectively stage left. So this is what's fascinating, Philip. Um, it, it's, it's worth saying that, I mean, one of the reasons I think Northern Ireland is interesting, even for those of us, uh, for, for those of you who are not in Ireland, right, is is that it, it is a fascinating process. We, we talk so much about terrorism. Uh, and, and here we have the, the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister. So the First Minister is called Michelle O'Neill. The Deputy First Minister is from the Democratic Unionist Party, the Protestant uh, Party, um, uh, is, it, it, uh, is called uh, Emma Little-Pangeli. And, and both of these women, and it's interesting they're women, this was a very, very sexist uh, uh, creation for a long, long time. So very interesting, both women. They're both the daughters of terrorists, of convicted terrorists. I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, Emma Little Pengeli's father was a gun runner for uh, the loyalist paramilitary organization. Uh, and Michelle O'Neill's father was a member of the IRA. Um, and for all the awful stuff about Northern Ireland, there is something quite moving in the fact that here you have two women who, in their own ways, you know, with all the difficulties that's involved in dealing with the past and family legacy and everything else, are somehow trying to create a different kind of politics than that in which their own fathers were engaged. Michelle O'Neill, I don't know if people may have seen it, but she made a, actually a very moving speech. I mean, I'm very, very critical of Sinn Féin and the IRA and all that stuff, but she made a really... I think beautifully crafted speech when she was accepting the, the role of first minister. It was very um, conciliatory. It was very generous. It recognised very openly that you know that a lot of people in Northern Ireland 
are attached to the union, feel themselves to be British, and that they have a right to do so. You know, uh, so she's a middle-aged woman. Uh, she's working-class woman. She she had a baby when she was, I think, sixteen. You know, she hasn't come from privilege. She suffered, as a lot of people in Northern Ireland did, from having a father who was in prison, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, she's she's a, she's actually a very impressive woman. And uh, I, I don't know, what one, one learns through watching Northern Ireland not to get too sentimental and hopeful, <laughs> but I think there may have been a moment with all of this where there's a realisation that the poison that Brexit pumped into the system there uh, is sort of working its way through. The the, the Brexit project uh, is, is really dead um, and that there is a possibility of getting back to where we were before, which was trying to work on the painful business of reconciliation and, and coming to some sort of working arrangements whereby people accept that they have very profound differences, but that those differences are not worth killing each other. Fenton, fun fact, the first time in history that Catholics outnumber Protestants in Northern Ireland. Yes, you know, this is the big, big thing that's going on, the slow-moving change that's happening, Philip, you know, because uh, Northern Ireland, just to remind people, was set up just over 100 years ago why was it set up? So it, it, it was set up, it was defined, its borders were drawn precisely in order to be a place that would always have a Protestant and therefore pro-British majority. That was the whole purpose of setting up this little statelet. And now it doesn't, right? So the last census last year showed that there are more Catholics than Protestants. Um the fact that Michelle O'Neill, who's obviously a Catholic nationalist, is is now the first minister, uh, embodies that change in a way. But also, um, what's also interesting is that neither Catholics nor Protestants now have a majority, right? So there are more Catholics than Protestants, but uh, there's also a growing and significant number of people who say none of the above when asked whether they're Protestants or Catholic or nationalists or unionists. And so what's really fascinating is that you have this middle ground, which is which has emerged. It's mostly younger people. Um, and the signs are that they're much more open-minded about the future, right? They're, they're open to persuasion. And if you have people who are open to persuasion, you begin to get the roots of a healthy democracy. Now, O'Neill has already had meetings with Sunak, but I'm wondering how a Starmer government is likely to approach Northern Ireland politics? I think that's a fascinating question, Philip. Um, Starmer actually has a lot of uh, Irish people and Irish-connected people around him. Um, probably his most influential advisor is a guy called Matthew McSweeney, is, uh, is from Cork. <laughs> uh, he Starmer himself, I, I haven't seen this referred to a lot in, in people writing about him, but he he spent, um, I think, three years uh, when he was a human rights lawyer. He was the human rights advisor to the reformed police um, uh, authority in Northern Ireland. So part of the peace process was, you know, basically abolishing the old police force and setting up a new one. And Stammer was very, very involved in that. So he, he has a lot more um, direct knowledge and feeling for Northern Ireland, I think, than is is typical of most British prime ministers, Boris Johnson didn't give a damn about it. Rishi Sunak knows nothing about it. Um, 
And, uh, and this has been true of, historically of Labour prime ministers too. Um, Stammer has appointed uh, as his front um, bench spokesman in Northern Ireland, uh, Hilary Benn, who's a very respected senior Labour politician. Uh, so it, it, it feels like a Labour government, which uh, is the, by far the most likely outcome by the end of this year, uh, I think would have a much more active engagement in Northern Ireland and and hopefully might be um, more able to begin to think about this process of change right? and, and, and accept the fact that Northern Ireland's future is quite open-ended and that this, this needs to be managed, right? It's, it, the, the critical thing is that this is not a process of change which creates fear, creates more division and therefore possibly leads to more violence. It has to be a process of change which is open and generous and subtle. And I, I have some optimism because of his own experience and because of the people around him um, that, that Starmer actually has some understanding of that necessity. Now, Fintan, I know you've got to belt out a column for your newspaper, so finally, <laughs> the question that many of us are wondering is what all this might augur for the prospect of reunification? I think, Philip, what, what I would say about that is, so uh, unfortunately, in my view, um, Sinn Féin, Michelle O'Neill's party, you know, as soon as she became First Minister, its party leader, uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, issued a statement saying... Um, a united Ireland is now within touching distance. It's not, and that's that kind of language. I think is really unhelpful because it just spooks everybody. You know, it, it creates expectations, good and bad, that that are not going to be fulfilled in the short term. There's really no prospect of united Ireland in the next ten years uh, because there has to be a majority, an obvious polling evidence of a majority of people in Northern Ireland wanting it before a border poll, a referendum could be called. Um, and th so I, I don't think that's likely to be on the cards in the next few years. However, what is clear is the direction of travel, right? So no matter what you think about whether you want United Ireland or you don't want United Ireland, the demographics have changed dramatically and they're only going in one direction uh, also, there are huge, big changes. Um, the United Kingdom itself is increasingly a problem. Um, you know, as the Brexit thing showed, Scottish independence is still bubbling away in the background as an issue. There's all sorts of questions about the UK. And meanwhile, the Republic of Ireland has become a more attractive uh, partner for the future, right? It's a, it's a prosperous country, it's now a liberal, open democracy. It's got rid of its uh, very, very narrow Catholic identity, you know, in terms of sexual morality and the role of the church. All that kind of stuff is pretty much gone. Finton, thanks, mate. Take care. Bye. Finton is uh, a friend of the program and uh, Mr O'Toole is, as I was uh, saying, in a jocular way, a columnist for the Irish Times. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.